Now, did you know it's okay to talk to yourself? You all right? I mean, it's not a joke, right? It's okay to talk to yourself. In fact, that's what we just sung a couple of times, didn't we? Psalm 103 says this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. That's the psalmist talking to himself, the songs we just sung. I'm going to take my soul in hand sometimes and remind my soul what's true. I can inform my soul, I can inform my emotions, I can inform the Godward part of myself what's true. And we want to fuel the flames of that soul conversation with the songs we sing and with the passages we preach because we want to talk, you to talk to your soul and tell it how great God is because you will forget. You will drift. You will think how great your boss is, how great other people's control of your life and circumstances is, and they will grow big in your mind and in your heart. And you'll have to tell yourself, no, it's God that's great. It's God that's sovereign. Or your soul is going to tell you how worthless you are sometimes. Did you ever do that or is that just me? And you're going to have to just grab your soul by the neck and say, I'm adopted. Shame is gone from me. I've been lifted. You should talk to your soul on a regular basis. You should tell your soul what's true. And that's why we want to sing the songs we sing to remind you. Make sure that it is you telling your soul what to believe and what to see and what to focus on, not something else. Now that's all free. We're going to go to Second Corinthians in a second, but we'll pray first and talk to the Father. So Father, we humble our hearts before you. And we just ask you to remind our souls of your greatness to remind our souls of your worth, to remind our souls that you have declared us righteous through your son, to remind our souls that we have been adopted into your family, to remind our souls that there is a cross and there is a resurrection, to remind our souls of the beauty and the worth and the greatness and the majesty that is yours and the sovereign power that is yours. Our circumstances don't have that. Just remind us, God. Remind us when our souls want to say something else. That our souls might be taught to bless you and only you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we're moving on to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, um, we've been talking about the major theme that is Christ is the supreme and worthy treasure even if that brings into your life slander and even if that brings into your life suffering. In the major section, we're kind of getting a good way into it at this point. There seems to be this uh, questioning of Paul that comes down to, Paul, who do you think you are? Like, who gives you the right to come get up in our face and speak so directly to us, to speak so frankly to us? What gives you the right and what gives you the authority, Paul, to talk to us the way you're talking to us? And so we've been working through several messages on that. And the first one was, well, let me talk to you about my letter of recommendation. It is the Holy Spirit taking the gospel through my ministry and transforming your life and eternity by it. That's my letter of recommendation. That's my resume. 
And then he talks about why do you have such boldness? Well, I have boldness because the gospel that I minister is this brighter glory gospel. It's a gospel that removes condemnation and gives righteousness. It's a gospel that removes death and brings life by the spirit. It's a gospel that is not passing away, but it is eternal. So I'm going to be bold. And then last week we talked about the boldness that he has that comes from your ability, my ability, and his ability to encounter the weight of the glory of God. And instead of being crushed by that, to enjoy that and to be changed by it. And the key verse was beholding the glory of the Lord. Moses had to veil his face. Israel had to be veiled from just the residue of God's glory. But we, with an unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord. And beholding the glory of the Lord, we are transformed from one degree, or into that same image, from one degree of glory to the next. And so how can you see your life changed? Not by focusing on your failures and not by focusing on your sin and not by focusing on your strengths and weaknesses, but by gazing on the beauty of Jesus, you will be transformed to be like Jesus. That gives some boldness. To be able to gaze on the glory of God in the face of Jesus gives some boldness. And now he's going to continue that theme today, this defense of his boldness, the defense of him not in ugliness, not brashness, not arrogance, but with just very direct speech, calling out the problems of the church, with very direct speech, speaking to people and calling them back to righteousness in God. And he's going to defend that boldness today. And he's going to focus in on the message that he has, the simple reliance on God's word. And he's never going to be ashamed to declare that. So let's look at it. We'll read 4, 1 through 6. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God... We do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Gospel ministry allows us to boldly make Jesus known. Gospel ministry allows us to boldly make Jesus known. We don't have to be timid. We also don't have to be discouraged. Because you probably get there sometimes. You're working on a friend. You're working on a family member. You've had the two people you're serving and sharing with. And it just feels like no progress is being made. It feels like nothing's happening. There doesn't seem to be any leaning Towards God. It's just like, what do you, why am I taking my time doing this? Because of what the gospel is, I don't have to be discouraged by that because I can know that God is at work. I can know sometimes it doesn't turn out the way we pray and hope it will. Let's look at it in the text. First, trust God's word. We don't need to water it down or use gimmicks. Trust God's word. We don't need to water it down or use gimmicks because think about how we do this. Like, we like to apologize for God's word. 
Like somehow God needs us to apologize for those hard parts of the Bible that people don't really like. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said it. No, it was probably Spurgeon. He's like, you know, a lion doesn't need to be defended. It just needs to be let loose. We don't have to apologize for God's word, but we tend to do that, don't we? Or what we do in our churches and our Bible studies and in our groups with other people is we kind of cut and paste. And there's kind of those parts of the Bible that the people around us really don't find relevant or it offends them or it hurts their feelings or it goes against the cultural norms that are around us. And so eh, we can kind of cut that out and let's just remove a little bit of that. Maybe we can add a little bit of this. So we just kind of cut and paste around the parts of the Bible we don't like. Or sometimes we do this with the Bible. We turn it into a moral handbook about how to have a successful life. And we've got seven steps and seven principles and seven, seven moral things about here's seven reasons or ways to date better. Here's seven ways to do your finances better. Here's seven ways to have better marriage. As if the Bible is some how-to manual that you can appeal to that's going to give you seven steps to fix whatever problem you have. Or we come to our quiet times and instead of opening the book that is God's self-revelation, Oh, that's kind of hard and it takes a lot of work. And I don't understand some of the words. So we go to our devotionals. Before we go to the Word. Devotionals are a good thing. But we do that before we go into the Word. Because the Word's just too hard. And underneath all of that is this well-intentioned problem. We don't trust the Bible. We don't. I mean, in our statement of faith, we do. And, and when we, you know, if we were to ask you to sign something, do I believe in the inerrancy of scripture? You'd be like, yeah, I do. But when I, when I, when I have a problem, where do I go? When, uh, you know, I don't know what to do, where do I go? When a friend of mine needs help, or maybe they're just complaining about their boss, where do I go? There's a book. There's a book that has everything we need for life and practice. There is a book that reveals to us who God is and what he's like. There's a book that declares to us the beauty of the gospel. There is a book that one word of is better than 10,000 of your words and 10,000 of my words of self-help. And there's a book for that. But we don't trust it. We think, I've got to make it a little more relevant because the people around me, it's just not going to work for them. But your ideas are? Like, God spoke, but your ideas are going to fix it, yeah. But we just think we've got to somehow make it work, make it more palatable. And I just want to beg you not to do that. And I think Paul wants to beg you not to do that. Don't water down. Don't take out the parts people don't like. Don't appeal to other sources. Don't have all these great ideas on your own. Point them to God. Point them to the gospel. Point them to Jesus. Point them to what God has said. You don't need a gimmick to change somebody's life. You don't need a gimmick to help people. You don't need to take out the parts that don't work. There's a, there's a book for that. There is a book for that. And so I just want to beg you. Here's the word. Here's what God says. Here's the gospel. It's what I have. And I promise you. I promise you it is more powerful than anything else we're going to come up with. Let's look at it in the text. So therefore, based on the new covenant hope that we have, the new covenant condemnation to righteousness, new covenant uh, death to life, based on this hope of the gospel, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God. And so 
How could Paul not be bold? He has been given a ministry and he realizes after all these years and he realizes after all these results and he realizes after all these conversions and he realizes after all these churches that have been planted, a very simple fact. All of that is the mercy of God. I didn't achieve church planter status. My gifts and my skills and my resources did not convert villages of people to the gospel. I didn't achieve ministry. By the mercy of God, I have this ministry. And so by the mercy of God, I can be bold. That's a word for us today, isn't it? That's a word for you and I today. If I have any influence whatsoever, if you have any influence whatsoever in a good way, if you have any gifts, if you have any skills, if you have any public ministry, or if you have any private ministry whatsoever, you didn't achieve that. It wasn't how great you are. It wasn't how charismatic or charming or naturally gifted you were. If you have any influence whatsoever, it's by the mercy of God. See, Paul remembers, I was a persecutor and a blasphemer, and I'm a follower of Jesus and a minister of Jesus, and it's all mercy. And you are the same thing. If you have any influence, remember it's mercy influence. So therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Now, lose heart kind of has a lot of range of meaning, but two kind of main ranges of meaning that we should consider. And so we don't lose heart, meaning we don't grow faint. We don't get discouraged. We don't give up and quit. We've got a mercy ministry and a gospel that makes dead people alive. So we don't quit. We don't get discouraged in the face of what our eyes see doesn't feel like progress. In front of what our eyes see, it looks like another failure. Another failure in us, another failure in others. This person I've been working with and they just made this boneheaded, you know, sinful decision to walk away or this, this completely rebellious decision and our hearts are broken by the sin of people around us or by our own sin. And it's tempting to be discouraged. It's tempting to be dis- I don't know if I'm saying that in English right. I've had problem with English all day. So I'll just apologize in advance. But we get discouraged. I do. I don't know if you do, but yeah, you just look out and think, what am I doing? Is it all wasted? Because we have a mercy ministry, we don't lose heart. So there's the discouragement range of meaning, the fainting, the wearing out range of meaning. But also don't lose heart. It could have the range of meaning as we don't get timid. We don't become cowards. And I think that is probably the more accurate way that we would take this in this text because it's a playoff of verse 3, verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we're very bold. We speak frankly. We speak directly. We don't shrink back. And to say that negatively, we don't lose heart. And so positively, we're bold. Negatively, we don't, we don't lose heart. We don't quit. We don't run away scared. We don't faint back when the time to act or the time to speak comes. And so therefore, because we have a mercy ministry, totally by the mercy of God, we don't cower in fear when the time comes. And then he goes into uh, kind of describing his ministry. And he, he starts with three kind of negative things. This is what we don't do. And then he ends it with, okay, here's what we do. I have to filter myself sometimes. <laughs> so I just laugh at myself and y'all can laugh at me. 
not with me at this point. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. And so first negative quality. This is not what we do. This is not how our ministry is marked. We have renounced the disgraceful and underhanded ways. The, the words literally are the, the hidden things of shame. So we have renounced, we've turned away the, the things that are hidden that if they were known would be shameful. We don't do that. So we don't present ourselves to others different than we are. We don't have, uh, you know, act one way in public. We don't act one way when we're singing, act one way when we're teaching, act one way at church. But that's not who we really are underneath. Like our character matches who we are. We've renounced the, the underhanded, the beneath the surface shameful things. And we refuse to practice cunning. We refuse to, pra- we refuse to be deceitful. Like, so we don't have a ministry that's trying to trick people. Like, what is it going to take in this group? What is it going to take in front of you to get you to follow me, to get you to give me honor, to get you to give me influence? What's it going to take in this group for me to get honor and for me to get influence? And so basically I'm willing to trick and I'm willing to manipulate and I'm willing to politic to try to get a following and to get people to honor me. And Paul's like, no, we don't do that. We don't trick people. We don't have a surface appearance that changes based on the group that we're a part of. We refuse to practice cunning and deceit. And look what else they refuse to do. Tamper with God's word. We refuse to tamper with God's word. And you might ask the question, though, in what way? Because the issue of of the church in Corinth isn't heresy. So it's not we refuse to tamper with God's word being heretics. What is he talking about? The church or the leaders of, of the church in Corinth that were taking over, they weren't becoming heretical. They were using the word to gain influence. And so they had a ministry and they had a word to get you to, to, to gain honor. And they had a ministry to get influence and they had a ministry to get paid and they had a ministry so that they would be elevated. And so whatever it takes for me to take out of God's word, to flatter you, whatever it takes for me to mess with God's word, to build up your ego, that's tampering with God's word. And so there were likely the leaders in Corinth had gained their uh, status in the church by messing around with the Bible, by saying the things, look how great we are. And churches do that too, right? And so look how great we are, man. We're not like those sinners out there. Do you know what those people do down the road? Do you know what those people do in that part of town? Do you know what those people do at the college? We're not like those. Don't you feel good about yourself? You should follow me. And we would be willing to tamper with God's word and use God's word to manipulate people as opposed to straightforward. Here's God's word and let's just follow him. And Paul's saying we refuse to tinker around and mess with and tamper with and adjust and flatter and manipulate people with the Bible. It's not saying wrong things. It's saying them from a wrong heart to gain a following for ourselves versus a following for Jesus. And Paul says, we don't do that. You don't have to water down the Bible, guys. You don't have to tamper around with it. You don't have to peddle it and sell it to people. It's God's word. It has sovereign power behind it. The Holy Spirit makes it come alive in people's hearts. You can trust it. It's not a product you sell. You can trust it. You don't have to take out the parts that, you know, that you don't like or that people may not like. Paul refuses to tamper with God's word. And then look at the contrast. The only positive side and mark of his ministry that he says. But with the 
open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. So we've talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Commending is not a negative thing. It's not self-promotion to, to try to you know, get on people's good sides. It was the normal way of establishing a relationship in that culture. So if I want to build a relationship with you of trust, I would need either an outside person that we both knew and trusted to commend me, to recommend me to you, or I would need some sort of resume, some sort of experiences that I could come and bring to you that would recommend me to yourself. Some set of skills that I could show you to commend me to you. And so when Paul says, okay, I showed up in Corinth and there wasn't a believer in anywhere. There was no church. And then I showed up again and did a longer stretch of ministry there. And when I showed up... Here was my letter of recommendation. Here's how I won friends and influenced people. Here's how I got you to trust me. Plain, simple, pure, here's the gospel. The open statement of truth. The simple declaration of the word. He tells the Ephesians elders, Ephesian elders in the book of Acts, I did not keep back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And so basically, Paul says, the reason we know each other and the reason we used to trust each other is because when I show up on the scene, I just say, here's what God says. Here's the gospel. Here's the beauty of Jesus. Here's the, the, the justification by faith of Jesus. Here's the cross. Here's the blood. Here's the redemption. Here's the resurrection. I determined to know nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified. That's all I had. I didn't tamper with the word. I didn't try to politic and manipulate a group of people. I just said, here's what God says. And he took dead people and made them alive. And we have a relationship all of a sudden. And you can do the same thing. You don't have to play around with God's word. It's God's word. His voice, his power, his spirit speaks it to us as we read it, as we share it. Here's what God says. Now, it doesn't mean here's what God says. And if I say that really ugly, it doesn't matter because, hey, I told you the truth. It means a gospel life matched with a gospel boldness. I just speak what God says at that point. With humility and with boldness. Here's what God says. Here is the gospel. Here is Jesus. Paul, what's on your mind today? Jesus Paul, are you just saying that? So we'll, we'll listen to you. No, here's Jesus again. So Paul, what's the message today? Jesus and his crucifixion. Paul, what's the message today? Well, he is raised from the dead too. I determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. I won't tamper with God's word. Here's the open statement of truth. And I'll just let your conscience determine from there. But that's dangerous, right? Because conscience can be a really big liar too. Conscience makes me the judge. So he qualifies it. Your conscience in the sight of God. So look, I'm going to just tell you, here's what God says as a pastor. And I hope our Sunday school teachers do it. And I hope your micro groups that you're part of do it. And I hope your friendship, discipling relationships do that. Like here's just God's word. And before Jesus, does your conscience resonate with that? Like this isn't a manipulator. This isn't a guy that plays around with it. Or does your conscience not resonate with that in the sight of God? And Paul says, that's how we do it. I trust God's word and I trust the spirit's work in your life to either approve that or not. And so trust God's word. You just don't have to water it down. I hope if if you get nothing else out of today, you don't have to water it down. You don't have to tamper with it. In fact, the only hope the people you talk to have is this word. 
The only thing that's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword that pierces the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, dividing the thoughts and intents of the heart, is this book right here. It's not my words. I'm just not that creative and I'm not that well-spoken as you've heard today. I stumble over my words. You probably do too. The only thing you have that can offer any help to your friends who are struggling and the only word you have that can offer hope to people who are lost and perishing in their sin is this book. I just want to beg you to trust it. Trust it for, for yourself, what you go to. Trust it for your friendships and relationships. Trust it for the lost. Just trust this book. It's powerful. Let's take the second step. Some will reject because they are blinded by Satan's work and the hardness of their own hearts or their their own hardened hearts. Some will reject because they are blinded by Satan's work and their own hardened hearts. I think we tend to, as people, swing on a bit of a pendulum. And so on one side of the pendulum, and I think it's kind of where we are now in in Christianity, is we're on the side of, of let's make the truth relevant. Let's make the truth taste good. Let's make the truth palatable. So that means we've got to leave some things out. And, and, and in the name of love and in the name of grace, let's just make the truth easy to swallow. Let's remove the hardened edges and the abrasive edges of the truth. And then they'll listen to us and they'll keep coming to our churches and they'll believe what's left of the truth that we've given them. And that's one side. And it assumes that you can be more Jesus than Jesus because Jesus was rejected by everybody that the father wasn't calling to himself throughout his whole life. And so unless we can be more Jesus than Jesus, we can't go to the side of let's just cut things out that may work so they'll believe. But then we do the other side and I think... You know, this happens a good bit in churches and, and we get just like, you know what, I'm going to just share the truth and I don't care how mean it is, I don't care how abrasive it is, I don't care how haughty and arrogant and self-righteous I am, here's the truth. I say, hey, I shared the truth with them. Didn't get to knock my Bible on that one, but I shared the truth. And so we are on one side self-righteous. Who wants a gospel of self-righteousness? And on the other side, we've got this kind of mushiness, this like almost like we can hide some parts of the Bible until they get in the club and then we'll let them in on the rest, like the fine print. But here's the thing. It does not matter how relevant you make the truth. It doesn't matter how nicely you present it. It doesn't matter how wonderful and sweet a person you are and how relevant it becomes. There will be people who are blind and dead to it who will not be able and will not receive it. And it doesn't matter how directly you speak the truth with self-righteousness because that certainly isn't going to get you there from here. So what do we do with this? Live a gospel life by the power of the Spirit, by the grace of God. Declare with humble boldness the truth of the gospel And then let God handle the rest. But maybe if I just had one more argument. No, the Holy Spirit has to unblind. But maybe if I just had one more fact. If they just had one more fact. No. Lostness is a spiritual condition. Lostness is not an intellectual condition. Lostness is not a lack of argumentation condition. Lostness is not a, if I could just meet a nice Christian condition. 
Lostness is hardened hearts of rebellion, blinded by Satan condition. And so if the supernatural work of God through the word of God and the gospel and the Holy Spirit does not happen, they will remain dead in their sins and trespasses. They will remain veiled by the God of this age. And so I can't put on myself the weight of how do I make the truth work for people, and I can't put on myself the the, the license to just live how I want and, and just say truth spitting and ugly. I can with desperate pleas before God unblind hearts and then serve and share. With desperate pleas before God, God, would you work and turn the lights of the gospel on in their hearts and then serve and then share? But I just don't want you to walk away thinking that somehow I can be good enough or I can, I can do it right enough or I can change it enough that people will believe because that's not the problem. And that's what Paul's going to label here. Paul, why don't you have a bigger following? Paul, why, why don't people believe? And he's going to answer that question for them with this, these two verses here. And so look at it. Chapter two on, Paul says, our lives are the aroma of the gospel. So the problem isn't Paul has somehow got this life that lacks integrity or this life that acts the graciousness of the gospel and somehow his life is to blame for people not believing. It's not the case. Chapter 2, our lives are the aroma of the gospel and it is the sweet, beautiful fragrance of life to those who are who are being saved, but it is the stench of death to those who are, being, uh, who are, who are perishing. And then all the way up through this, it's not that he held the message back. He was plain speaking. So what's the problem, Paul? Why aren't they believing? And he explains something so important about the human condition to us. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In chapter 3, it's the ministry of condemnation. The, the law is the ministry of condemnation. It takes the ministry of the gospel to bring righteousness. So what's the problem, Paul? It's veiled. And as we looked at last week, what was the veil? It was that... The rebellious, idolatrous heart of a human being cannot gaze at the glory of God in anything but terror and destruction. And so anyone who sees glory apart from the gospel is destroyed by glory. Anyone who sees glory apart from the gospel is terrified by glory. And so the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. And you think about it, think they, are, they are veiled to the glory of God. This looks like some crushed Jewish criminal on a cross to them. This looks like some shameful teacher that even his own people don't respect. This looks like some guy that suffers and dies. This, oh, well, maybe though, maybe he's a good teacher years later. We can think of him that way. Patronizing. Patronizing. Because they can't see glory in a cross. They can't see glory in an empty tomb. They can't see glory in a crucified Messiah. And so it's veiled to them. It's veiled to them because when they encounter it, they reject it. And they're that much heart more hardened because of it. It's veiled to them because when they hear it, they reject it and they're hardened and they're more hardened. And you've got layer after layer of hardness, callousness of heart over the top of the heart that's hearing the gospel. So their hearts are hardened to it. It's veiled to them. They can't see it. And then there's another component. It's not just a merely human rejection. It's not like I could just get in there and take a scalpel and cut something off their heart so that they could believe. It is a deeply spiritual condition. The God of this age has blinded them. 
The God of this age has blinded the hearts of unbelievers, which means this is a whole other realm from me just serving and from me just sharing. It's this whole other realm involved now. And so what do we do? The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Satan in Ephesians 2 is called the prince of the power of the air. And so Satan is a real He's not just some evil force. He is a real personal being who is actively opposed to God, who is actively trying to blind people's hearts to the gospel, who is actively, since he can't get to God, God's kind of too big for him. He can kill people and he can spiritually destroy people as a means of attacking the image of God in people. And so Satan's all about how can I destroy humanity as my assault on the throne of God? How can I blind humanity from believing the glory and the beauty and the majesty of this God? How can I veil them from seeing it? And that's his work. Is he wants to capture people spiritually and destroy them. And he wants to have people kill and murder and fight and divide from each other. As a means of waging war against God. Because he can't go toe-to-toe with God. But he can attack his image in you. And he can maim his image as we kill children in the womb. And he can maim his image as we fight in war against the races. He can maim the image of God in all the different ways that human fallenness works itself out in our world. Because he can't get to God, he can get to us. And the church is meant to go to war against that. It's meant to go to war against the disunity within our culture. It's meant to go to war against the culture of death. It's meant to go to war with those who would redefine the good biology that God created him with when he called it very good. He made him male and female. And we're meant to go to war. Not the war of swords, not the war of guns and ammunition, but the war to rescue people from the fall with the gospel. Because they are not just lost because they don't know something. They're lost because they're blind, which takes our witnessing And make something else required of it. Like begging God to work in the lives of our kids. And begging God to work in the lives of our co-workers. And begging the Holy Spirit to turn the light of the gospel on. When I go to sacrifice and serve the people around you. And begging the Holy Spirit to turn the lights of God on. With the people that that my kids play ball with. or, Or the people that I'm in my neighborhood. Like it's going to take a work of God. Which means you've got to go pursue God and ask God to work and then go work. So don't miss that element. They're blind. But what are they blind to? They are blind from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. They are blind to the beauty of Jesus. They are blind to the glory of Jesus. They're blind to the greatness of Jesus. They're blind to the worth of Jesus. They're blind to the sovereign Messiah who rules over the earth that Jesus is. They're blind that Jesus is the image of God. They're blind that to see God or to see Jesus is to see God. To see Jesus is to see what God is like. To see Jesus is to see what God would do. And if you read the Acts uh, or read the Gospels, you're reading the story of God walking on earth, acting the way God would, would act if he were on earth. And we're blind to that. And we're blind to how wonderful Jesus is. We're blind to how majestic Jesus is because we see suffering. We see despising. We see rejection until we have the gospel and we see glory in its place. That he was despised for you. He was killed for you to rescue us back to God. Satan does not let people see that. And so it takes the gospel. It takes the gospel to do that. 
They are blind from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus. They're blind from seeing the glory of Jesus, who is the exact imprint of God. To see him is to see God. Let's take this last step. Focus on Jesus, not ourselves, so that God cannot blind people to his glory. Focus on Jesus, not ourselves, so God can unblind hearts to his glory. And so I want you to think about all the things we like to focus on as Christians, or not even Christians, just as Americans. Like We want the nation to be more moral. And that's a good thing, right? Because there's a lot of evil, there's a lot of sin, there's a lot of really jacked up stuff that happen in culture. Or we like to jump on kind of the, the social justice um, wave of our day that's more popular. And should we do social justice? Yeah. Or we like to look out at the culture and say, and focus on the really big sins that our culture has out there, especially the ones they have and we don't, right? Because that makes us feel better. See how that works? And so we want to rail against gay marriage. We want to rail against gender switching up stuff because, man, that's pretty safe for most of us. People can quit shacking up and still spend eternity apart from God. People can quit struggling with their orientation and spend eternity apart from God. People can be amazing neighbors who look like us, think like us, act like us, and spend eternity apart from God. We can rescue people from every form of human oppression and human injustice and wage the good fight of social justice and leave people eternally separated from God. What is the hope of moral transformation for America or any nation? What is the hope for people who struggle with their orientation? What is the hope for people that have the big sins? What is the hope for our culture? What is the hope for the injustices of our world? He has a name. His name is Jesus. And only he can rescue a heart blinded by Satan and bring him into the kingdom of the son of God's love. Only he can bring people into the marvelous light of God. And people who are kingdom people then go spread the kingdom. But you can't fix the world by having lost people try to act like kingdom people. They're not. You can fix the world by letting people be transformed, enter into the kingdom of God by the gospel, and then go change the world around them little or small ways. Because only Jesus has the power to set the things right that we want to set right with our causes. Focus on Jesus if you want to see people set free. Focus on Jesus. Let's look at it in the text. For, based on the open statement of truth that we commend ourselves, for, based on the veiledness of the human heart, blinded by Satan, for what we proclaim is not ourselves. Huge problem in Corinth, self-promotion. Huge problem in Corinth. Let's jockey for status and position within culture or status and position within the church. Huge problem for Corinth. Let's be teachers that are, are just somehow have the magnetism enough to get people to follow us. And Paul's like, we don't proclaim ourselves. I ain't worried about getting a following. That's, I'm worried about getting a following for Jesus, let's say, not for myself. And so we don't proclaim ourselves. Paul doesn't preach Paul. Paul doesn't show you how clever he is with all his clever stories. Paul doesn't get you to follow after Paul because Paul somehow has the right mix of things that are get you on his side. We don't proclaim ourselves. 
Let's go tell the church in America that, right? Let's go tell some of the pastors, tell my own heart, don't no, leaving me out. Let's go tell us this. You're not the message. Your church isn't the message. The way you do church isn't the message. Jesus, proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what we, that's the message. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. Here he is. Paul, what's on the agenda today? Jesus, did you know he's Lord? What's on the agenda today? Jesus, do you know he died on a cross? Who became, he became sin, who knew no sin, so that you could have the righteousness of God in him? So he did. Jesus was the focus of the message, not the social issues of the day. Jesus was the focus of the message, not the problems rampant in the church, though he addressed those also. Jesus was the core focus. And then we, as your servants for Jesus' sake. That, like the first part makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense why a, a preacher or a minister or a teacher would teach about Jesus. But what do you mean? The other part of your message is us as servants. And the word isn't as nice as servants, by the way. It's the word for slaves. We're your slaves for Jesus' sake. You tried on that title lately? Like that doesn't strike up good images. But we can clean it up and make it, yeah, servants. That's also accurate. Paul is saying, I am a slave of Jesus, so I'm a slave of the people around me. And I act like a servant. I follow Jesus like a servant, and I take care of the people around me like a servant. And you know the way Jesus served us? He died. So you know the way we serve others? We die. We die to ourselves to give our lives for the sake of the people around us. Jesus is Lord, and if Jesus is Lord, we're slaves. And if we're slaves, we're slaves of the people around us so that they will love Jesus and follow Jesus, whether they be lost or whether they be saved. We're going to help people follow Jesus. And our life is sacrificed, poured out, emptied to where it looks like death for others. Because that's what it looked like when Jesus rescued us. It's not service to earn God's favor. It's service because God has served us in Jesus. And then he goes and he completes it with this analogy. There is physical light at creation. God spoke, let there be light. And then light obeyed him and started. And so God speaks to the human heart, the new creation, the spiritual creation. Light be. And light is. Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus in blinding light. God is called the God of light. God is light. And so the God who spoke physical light in the world also speaks spiritual life into the heart of human beings. And life happens. Light enters into darkness. And people who were in the kingdom of darkness are transferred into the kingdom of his dearly loved son. So that they might declare the marvelous works of God. That's why we exist. So God said, let light go into darkness. And he has shown in our hearts what? The knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Here's the beauty of Jesus. Here's the worth of Jesus. Here's the cross of Jesus. Here's the work of Jesus. Here's the majesty of Jesus. Here's the beauty of Jesus. Here's God the Son. His name is Jesus. Here's the the empty tomb of Jesus. Here's the redeeming work of God, Jesus. Here's the restoring of humanity. It's Jesus. And God will shine the light through the gospel, through the work of the Spirit, through the Word of God. To make dead people live, to make darkened places light. 
so that they see the beauty and worth of Jesus with enough clarity to see, ah, he is beautiful. He is wonderful. He is glorious. A couple practical things as we wind down. First, trust the word for yourself and others. Soak in it. Before you open your devotional, open this book. Before you go to something secular or something common sense, go to this book. You need it for your soul. If you're going to tell your soul what to do, bless the Lord, oh my soul. If you're going to make that happen, this book is the fuel for what you have to tell your soul when your soul says you're worthless. When your soul says your boss is greater than God who holds your life and eternity in your hands. This book is what you have to tell your soul. So go to the book. Trust it. And then your friend's going to come to you and their life's going to be all jacked up. Well, the only thing that fixes jacked up lives is the work of Jesus in his word. Like the only hope they have because you know, their marriage is on the rocks and they're fighting with each other all the time. Here's what I've found in my marriage counseling days. Go have a date night. Okay. You know, every time we have any conversation beyond how's the weather, we go to war with each other. Go spend three hours then, have a nice dinner and start throwing it at each other. It costs you 45 bucks for that fight. Yes, communication is important. Yes, date nights are important. But only the gospel can fix the heart to where it actually becomes meaningful, right? And so trust the word. That's what your friend needs when they come to you for counsel. Trust the word. That's what they need for their decisions. Trust the word. That's what you need. Second, pray, serve, and share. We've said serve and share too. And I've left off a piece. Pray, serve, and share. Because your best service and your best, most polished gospel presentation will leave people blinded by the God of this age. And so beg God to unblind. Beg God to work. And then go serve and then go share. And then the last one, serve sacrificially. We have been served by a cross. By the death of the only innocent man that ever lived. By the death of God the Son. By the death of the God of life. And that's the nuclear arsenal for you to go serve beyond what's convenient. And for me to serve beyond what my limitations are. And for me to serve when it's kind of stuff I don't like to do. That's not my gift. The ability for me to go serve people sacrificially is found in a God who has served me with ultimate sacrifice. And so I can go serve others when I'd rather sit around and watch the Atlanta United game. I went to bed. I didn't stay up late to watch it. I'll just tell you. But I wanted to. So to serve others, the power comes from the gospel. We can boldly, we can simply, we can plainly say, here is Jesus with all his beauty and all his majesty and all his worth. We can live lives that that show that, don't just say that. And then we can give it into the hands of God. God, you're going to have to make Jesus known. And that's how this works. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we bow as the redeemed. We bow as the adopted. 